Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, Alarmy. Before we get started, we wanted to make sure you heard the big news. The Alarmist has joined Patreon. Patreon subscribers will get access to our content ad-free, as well as our aftermath post-interview discussion and final verdict. We'll also be putting out additional bonus episodes and other fun stuff. Here's a preview of Guest Alarmist, where I step aside and let a guest walk us through a personal tragedy, and together the Alarmist crew figures out who's to blame. This month on Guest Alarmist... Georgia Mishak discusses the impeachment of President Georgia. This this is about 20 years in the making. I have been looking for the answer to this. Thousands of dollars spent in therapy. Oh, wow. But, but today, who knew? All I needed was... Was a podcast, a podcast and a platform? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, don't, yeah, don't start with therapy. Start, start podcasting. Start with a podcast. podcast. Yes, yes. Go to patreon.com slash the alarmist and subscribe today. Now on to our episode. Each week we decide who's to blame for a historical tragedy. And each week you tell us if we got it right. My name is Rebecca Delgado Smith, and this is the aftermath. The aftermath. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning into this episode of The Aftermath. Today we're speaking with guest expert Ellen Hewitt. Ellen is an award-winning reporter with Bloomberg News and Bloomberg Businessweek. She covered the WeWork downfall in season one of the Bloomberg podcast, Foundering. Let's hear what she has to say about WeWork. 
Hi, Ellen. Thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. So can you start off by giving us some background on Adam Newman? Where is he from and how did he come up with the idea for WeWork? Great question. So Adam Newman is um, such an interesting character. So he grew up in Israel and he um, actually an interesting part of his background is that he lived for a handful of years in his um, teens on a kibbutz in Israel. For those who are not familiar, a kibbutz is... um, there are many kibbutzim, which is, I guess, the plural of kibbutz, in Israel. Um, these are experiments in communal living that have been around for several decades, um, in which people really have this like socialist way of living together, in which dozens of people, maybe even sometimes hundreds of people live together in the same community, share resources. They actually um, pool many of their, or in, in many cases, they pool their income together um, and then distribute resources evenly throughout the community and they, um, you know, uh, live near each other and the children like are schooled together and things like that. Anyway, it's a very interesting social experiment um, in which Adam Newman clearly took a lot of inspiration because when he was young, he lived there for a few years. And then later when he starts WeWork, he talks a lot about how we work. he wants WeWork to be a capitalist kibbutz or a Kibbutz 2.0, which, um, <laughs> and by capitalist kibbutz, he means sort of having the elements of community, but also allowing people to kind of, um, in his words, eat what they kill. So like, he, he was kind of against the income pooling, basically, he thought that it was unfair. He, um, you know, came to New York uh, to go to college and um, has, you know, been, you know, living in the States, um, and generally New York based person. Um, and yeah, he's big personality has always been this sort of like brash, charismatic. He's very tall, you know, he's very um, friendly, uh, loves to talk. Um, and yeah, when he was young and living in New York, he, you know, I think was pretty clearly interested in being an entrepreneur, but it took a while for him to find the right idea. So of course, in his own telling of his early years, he first started a company that made high heeled shoes with a removable heel. <laughs> So it was for women to be able to walk through New York as flats. And then with the heel, um, this business did not take off. He likes to make fun of it when he gives speeches about his entrepreneurial past. Then more seriously, he started a company called Crawlers with a K. um, And they sold baby clothes for uh, infant or children of crawling age um, with knee pads. So the tagline was something like, just because they can't tell you doesn't mean it doesn't hurt. This was oh also a very God. funny thing. And, and this was a serious business that I think eventually um, maybe like someone else took on as, as leading it. But, you know, this was, you know, in his telling of his life, these are the stories. Um, these are the experiences that taught him that it's very important in entrepreneurship to have a passion for what you're working on. Because he he, he deemed that these businesses did not work because they were not aligned with his passions. Mm. Of course, eventually he gets around to starting um, WeWork because uh sometime in the like early to mid 2000s he's working on crawlers he is um working and um meets this guy named miguel mckelvey who's going to become his co-founder and together um, miguel is like an architect and together the two of them decide to start a company called green desk which was like a co-working space that they marketed as eco-friendly um and that idea takes off. Eventually, there's, you know, for complicated reasons, they decide to like sell the idea of Green Desk to someone else. And then they take that money and together the two of them start WeWork. And so it's basically like 
Adam is kind of the charismatic front man. Miguel is like the space designer. He's much more quiet. He also has a background in communal living. He grew up on a commune in Oregon. Um, and uh, yeah, the two of them start WeWork, I think officially around 2010. Um, and wow. yeah, what helps is that they, um, yeah, there's a lot of available real estate because we're just after the financial crash. Um, and then they also decide to make WeWork different from other space rental places by making it a little bit more like community oriented. That's going to be like a theme of how they um, just like a major motif and theme of the whole company's arc. So we left the uh, com- the, the field of comfort uh, shoes and baby clothes yeah. for community. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. I actually never thought of it that way. But yes, he was trying to make comfortable shoes, comfortable knees. <laughs> And now he's like, screw that. Um, I'm interested in selling sort of like, yeah, community, reinventing the nature of work, making it more, um, you know, it's a lot of like 2010s millennial uh, themes of like Mm. having, you know, sort of mixing work and play, um, making work fun, um, which of course is only somewhat doable. um, And and generally, um, yeah, trying to capitalize on this sort of like, freelancer entrepreneurial startup spirit that was booming um, in the 2010s. And how did customers respond to WeWork at first? Uh, What were some of the early iterations of the WeWork model? Oh, it's so I think the most interesting thing about WeWork is kind of the spirit and brand that they managed to make because um, there are other companies out there, you know, like um, uh, Regis is a classic example. There are other companies doing similar things in which you could rent um, short-term office space in order to fill your office needs. Like it's not inherently a very sexy thing. What made WeWork special is they made it sexy. They were like, we are going to make it fun. We're going to fill it with cool, creative um, entrepreneurs. We're going to serve beer. It, they stopped doing this toward the later end <laughs> of WeWork's life. But in the early days, beer on tap, like um, parties all the time at these offices, um, like I remember as a reporter covering WeWork in 2016, talking to uh, the employees who had, you know, the, these were like community managers. These were the employees who actually ran each of the offices. And a lot of their jobs dealt with beer. They were like learning how to tap kegs. Um, they learned how to like deal with liquor licenses and stuff because sell, having free alcohol was a major part of what made WeWork special. And I remember talking to people who were um, you know, customers there, renters, um, members, as you call them, we were members saying like, you know what, it was fun. Like there were a lot of startups around. Um, imagine sort of the peak of like, you know, this was like uh, sort of the the startup uh, industry was just getting more and more frenzied. Um, there was more and more money coming in. Um, and so both for WeWork itself and also for the companies that were renting space from WeWork, venture capital was like fueling all of this. And, um, you know, with a lot of young people, uh, there were a lot of, um, you know, it's like, you know, there was like foosball and like cool colors on the wall and things like that. And um, there was a lot of effort put in by the Weaver staff to make um these spaces really fun and exciting. And I think actually to to a great extent, they they really um, succeeded at doing that. And so that that did make it special. And it also helped that Adam was like such a like fun and charismatic person. Like I remember talking to someone else in the commercial real estate world and he was saying like, yeah, part of how Adam charmed all these landlords into like <gasps> signing deals with him was that, um, you know, commercial real estate is usually kind of boring. <laughs> and then this guy comes in and he's like, he's just fun. He's like very energetic, a little chaotic. Um, 
you know, there are people who tell stories of doing job interviews early at uh, we work in which they ended the job interview with a tequila shot, right? Like this, there was there like Adam loves tequila. This is very well documented, and he, I think, he brought some of that or a lot of that energy to um, the we work work culture, both for members and employees. And and who was Rebecca Paltrow? Who is Rebecca Paltrow, and wh- what is her involvement in starting the company? Yeah, fascinating character. Um, she is Adam's wife. She's also Gwyneth Paltrow's cousin. She met Adam when Adam was in his 20s, and he loves to tell this story. He says that they went on their first date, and within just a few minutes, she looked at him and said something along the lines of, um, you, my friend, are full of shit, and every word that comes out of your mouth is fake. And you know, and she was basically, she, she's very, um, I think it'd be fair to call her a spiritual person. Like She talks a lot about energy. She's very in tune with sort of like your passion and your life's work. And so she's a huge influence um, on WeWork and a huge influence on Adam. You know, they meet, they get married. Um, I think uh, now maybe they have, they have many children, I think at least four or five, if not more. Um, And so they they have this big family eventually. But, you know, when they first meet, she is the one who inspires Adam to um, pursue businesses that are much more in line with his passion. She's very like, um, you know, oriented toward like living a life of meaning. And um, they, uh, and she's also someone who's really big on branding. So there's a lot of things that come later in the story of WeWork, such as, um, you know, some of their lofty mission statements, like elevating the world's consciousness. You know, that was, that was their mission statement from, I think, maybe 2019 onward. Um, And also the idea of um, making WeWork uh, meat free um, was, you know, these are kind of, these are the kind of things that were um, uh, Rebecca's influence, right? And so she's someone who, Um, yeah, she's just like, yeah, she had a big influence on Adam and then she's very involved in the early days of WeWork, but, um, she's not officially a co-founder back then. And then what happens is later on, um, they actually started referring to Rebecca as a, as a co-founder. That was like an interesting, you know, for those of us who are reporters who were following the company very closely, I think we were interested to see like her role change to co-founder you know, kind of retroactively. That's um, big. Yeah. Uh, no one, no one would dispute that she was like, you know, she was obviously like in the, in the wings and very much like influencing, even if not in an official role. Can you tell us about the uh, company retreats that employees were expected to join? And if you could talk, speak to the office culture, that would be great. Right. So within, the, we'll start with stuff within the office and then we'll get to the the okay. retreats. But, um, you know, within the office, I think um, for employees, there was a lot of what I would describe as like rah-rah energy. <laughs> so I talked to employees who, you know, they described this weekly meeting called TGIM, which stands for Thank God It's Monday, which happened every Monday evening in which, um, you know, executives at the company would um, come up and like, you know, give speeches to the company, talk about how great everything was. Um, there was in the room in which they would do this and, you know, other offices would be like, um, you know, video conferencing in, but the room in which they did this had a big WeWork gong on it that I guess they rang for um, celebratory occasions. And there was, um, and also like when there were new hire orientations, they were apparently like quite energetic, kind of like a pep rally. Like, um, so there's a lot of what maybe I would personally describe as mandatory fun, <laughs> which is, I think like, you know, something that happens when you, have an have an office culture that uh, you know is trying to blur the distinction between work and um, you know professional life and personal life, right? Which I think WeWork was really trying to do. They were trying to make um, work 
your life and life, your work. And, you know, they had their famous slogans are like, do what you love. Um, and like, um, just, just having this sort of wholeness to your life, um, in which work and pleasure are not, um, separate, but rather the same thing. And so, yeah, I think for employees that manifested in, yeah, these like TGIM gatherings at work, um, a lot of times after, you know, a lot of times they would have a TGIM meeting or some sort of other all hands meeting. And then it would kind of turn into a party. Like they would bring out trays of tequila shots and like people would sort of be hanging out. And then I think the, the culmination of all of this is um, WeWork summer camp, which is of course a very famous part of WeWork culture. Um, and so summer camp was a thing, a big offsite that was held every summer um, for employees um, and also for members. So it was like mandatory for employees and for members could um, you know pay to come. And, um, and often the employees would come maybe like a day or two early and do some like team building activities. And then it would be sort of this big party in which all the members would come as well. And so summer camp started off as this small thing at like a, um, you know, sort of like a retreat area in the Adirondack mountains, but eventually became this enormous production. They used to go to London for it. They had it at various locations, um, in which, you know, like thousands of people would come, um, probably maybe even, you know, more. And, um, they would, um, you know, if you were a WeWork employee, you'd get flown in, like it was sort of an all expenses paid, but it was largely mandatory. Like I'm sure there were some exceptions, but it, the expectation was that you would go. Um, and yeah, it was kind of like if uh, you were going to Coachella, but it was run by your boss because it was like <laughs> work, but also like a music festival. So they had um, speakers like Deepak Chopra and then they had music performances from like Lord and The Weeknd and these like big names um, and these like big, you know, it was just like a big blowout party, a lot of drinking, a lot of, um, uh, you know, company bonding. Um, there's, uh, yeah. And like, you know, if you talk to employees, they were, they were like, yeah, these were fun. Um, but it was also like a little strange, like why is my workplace throwing these parties? Um, and um, yeah, certainly it was something that was kind of an expense for WeWork, but also a way to build uh, their unique culture. So we talked about how there was this moment where it seemed like WeWork went from being a real estate company to a tech company. When was that and why was there the need for this shift? Yeah, I don't know that, the, you know, there's not an exact moment when that happens. But my guess is sometime in which sometime around the time when WeWork starts uh, raising more and more venture capital, which I would, you know, say maybe like 2013 to 2015. And this is like really the boom times start to roll for WeWork. Um, yeah, they did start kind of internally and externally, I'm sure, um, finding ways to suggest that they were more of a tech company. So that could be like hiring uh, executives who came from like Apple or Spotify or like other tech companies or, you know, touting some of the internal apps that they use to help member, you know, members could have access to the WeWork app, which would help them like send messages to other uh, WeWork mm-hmm. members asking for, you know, sending messages or things like that. Um, you know, I think obviously at its core, WeWork was, um, you know, real estate re-rentals. I think everyone knew that, but there was um, a big incentive for them to play up all the ways that they were much more than that because, um, you know, they were raising money from uh, venture capitalists who are looking for tech platforms, because these are the ones that scale the best. These are the ones that give venture capitalists the best returns on their money. And um, so this is just like, this is happening all around Silicon Valley and sort of all in the tech industry in the 2010s is companies are um, trying to fit the playbook of like, what is a high growth 
venture backed startup. And so that means a company that is growing really quickly, not necessarily turning a profit um, because growth in this world is more important than profit. And um, someone with like a charismatic founder, someone who's really bold, um, uh, you know, and so WeWork was doing all these things. They were opening up offices all over the world, like at this like rapidly accelerating pace. Um, they were raising tons of money from kind of, you know, the big names in venture capital. Uh, you know, it seemed like every year, maybe even uh, less than every year, there would be a new funding round in which, um, you know, the WeWork valuation went first from like 5 billion to 10 billion, 17 billion. Then it's like 20 plus, like it's just growing and growing. Um, and yeah, to me, they really encapsulated this, uh, this sort of like frenzy of venture backed startup growth that, um, you know, was really prevalent in the 2010s, especially in the late 2010s. Um, even though they may not have been traditionally a tech company, right? Um, right. They, they managed to uh, catch that wave. And when did uh, Adam meet Masayoshi's son? And how, how does he convince him to invest? What was that relationship like? Yeah, it's a super interesting relationship. Um, the moment that um, Masayoshi son meets Adam Newman or the moment that he decides to invest in WeWork is a pivotal turning point for the company because SoftBank at that point, um, oh, so Masayoshi son is the head of SoftBank. SoftBank is this um, Japanese conglomerate that um, also has, um, at that point in time, uh, an enormous venture fund called the Vision Fund, in which um, you know he's raised a ton of money and is looking to um, invest that money. And so this the the, the Vision Fund um, and money from SoftBank ends up having this huge effect, um, not just for WeWork but for companies all over Silicon Valley, in which basically this fund is so big that the checks that they're writing out of it are also enormous which means that the um, founders of these startups that are receiving this money are all of a sudden, you know, maybe when you might expect like a $500 million investment, all of a sudden you're getting like a $3 billion investment <laughs> and being told like, go out and spend this in a way that's going to make you grow even faster. And so it just is kind of this like supercharged energy that um, comes from SoftBank. And so this, this meeting um, or so this relationship between um Masa, as he's called, and Adam is this very interesting one in which um, Masa basically, you know, he he meets Adam. The famous story is that they have a meeting that is less than 30 minutes in which he decides to invest. I forget the exact amount. I think it might be like $4 billion or something, like just quite enormous. Um, they have a meeting. Um, Masa uh, decides to invest, you know, an enormous amount of money in WeWork. And he tells Adam, like, basically, you need to go out and um, grow as fast as possible. And whatever you think you're doing, you need to do something bigger, crazier. Um, you need to be like growing even faster. And so um, Adam, uh, I think, you know, takes this to heart or this, this is something that I think he's, you know, glad to hear. And the, and the company is already headed in this direction. So basically this is when like everything that's already happening at WeWork gets just heightened right so it's like the valuation grows faster um the company is growing faster they're spending more um they might actually be burning and losing more cash but it kind of doesn't matter because they're getting this um infusion of money from this investor that seems to have kind of limitless pockets okay i'm seeing here that they met in 2016 and the amount that was given was 4.4 billion Okay, great. Yeah. Thank I you think to they our fact checker, Chris. Yeah, amazing. I think, they, <laughs> I think they met and he didn't invest right then. I think they invested maybe a couple of years later. But, gotcha. Um, but uh, yes, four, $4 billion is kind of the first check. And then and then he'll kind of come again later in the story where 
Um, yeah, SoftBank has obviously becomes this like major investor in WeWork. So, and- yeah, what? Why did it seem like the billions and billions of dollars in investments just weren't enough for WeWork? What were they spending their money on, and how was the company mismanaging these funds? Um, what were they spending their money on? This is such a fun question because WeWork <laughs> spent their money on just the nuttiest things. Um, <laughs> And for reporters who were covering this company, it was just like endlessly fun to try to track down like what they were spending their money on. Um, I mean, some of it you can understand. They were spending money on uh, leases, um, you know, outfitting new buildings, like hiring a ton of people. Like a lot of it was spent toward growing the company. And, you know, for many years in a row, they were doubling the revenue of the company every year, which is just like a breakneck speed. Um, and so, you know, to give credit where it's due, they were doing something that many companies try to do and, and cannot, right? But they were also burning a ton of money doing it, right? So we now know that um, maybe with j- just a few exceptions, uh, WeWork was losing money um, most of the years that it has been in business. And the and they were spending it on a lot of things that um, were kind of helping grow you could you could see how they thought that it was like helping grow the brand but they were kind of getting further and further afield from what the core business of WeWork is so classic examples they um opened a residential they opened two residential buildings called We Live um in which these these were not office spaces but this was in, instead um short term rental apartments um they opened an elementary school a private elementary school called We Grow um in part because um Rebecca was inspired to start her own school when she felt the school options available for her young children were not to her uh, standards. So they had a they had a We Grow in uh, New York City, which was like uh, you know a very expensive school for young children. Um, the like design came from this like celebrity architect. Like it was just kind of, you know they the children went upstate once a week to work on a farm and and then like. Anyway, it was it was like very wholesome and um, progressive education, um, really, in I think many people's opinion, not core to the business of WeWork. <laughs> um, they, uh, you know, they spent a lot of money on, on things like summer camp. They spent money on this um, event called the Creator Awards in which um, basically they gave away money to um, startups that were WeWork members that wanted to compete in sort of a like pitch competition type thing. Um, uh, and and the creator boards were also these like big blowout events. It was like the Red Hot Chili Peppers performed. Um, the judges were like Ashton Kutcher and P Diddy and like these it's just people <laughs> that like anyway there there was a lot of flash. It was very fun. Um, another classic thing that they spent money on is like um, they invested. So they didn't buy, but they invested in a um, an indoor wave pool company called Wave Garden um, in part because. Adam is a big surfer and was like interested in this company. So it was just one of these things where it like, uh, I think the closer, just the more examples of, of this that you saw, you, you saw that, um, you know, uh, WeWork was at least making decisions to spend their money in a way that I think many people were not sure they understood uh, what the point of it was. Yeah. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. 
Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all have stress and anxiety we carry around as we go about our everyday life. At The Alarmist, we know it's always better to say it out loud and talk it through. Whenever I stress about the sinking of the Titanic, I don't sit with those thoughts in a dark room. I turn on the lights and dive right into it. Therapy is a great place to get things off your chest and work through what's really going on. Maybe you can't stop spiraling or catastrophizing. I started therapy over 10 years ago and never looked back. If you're thinking of starting therapy... Give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Heck, we sometimes change our minds and rethink the verdict at The Alarmist. And that's also okay when it comes to therapists. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com Alarmist today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp. H-E-L-P dot com slash alarmist. So then why and when did the WeWork gravy train stop? How, how did the and, and how did the leadership respond to the stoppage of, of, of funds? Yeah. So this um, it's a it's I think some of the details are, are you know, um, you know, happened in private conversations that, you know, we may never know exactly all right. parts of it. But basically, um, at some point. There was a discussion, this would have been in late 2018, there was an effort to have SoftBank invest even more money in WeWork. Um, this was happening behind the scenes. Um, and my understanding is that at first, Masayoshi Son was um, uh, like open to this idea, but then because of changes in the stock market, basically he was no longer able to convince the other people involved at SoftBank that he was gonna put all this money in WeWork. So instead they dialed back their investment and made a smaller investment. And um, the end result of this was basically that WeWork felt pressured to um, go public. So this starts mm. um, this process in 2019 in which WeWork um, files to start the process of having an IPO. And um, this, you know, because an IPO, you know, for those who are not as familiar, it's like just another way to raise money. Basically, like if you go public, then you can sell more shares um, on the, um, you know, in the stock market. It's, it's, um, an alternative to uh, raising money privately from venture capital and other investors. 
Um, but as you know, eventually as the company gets closer to going public, this also means that they, you know, in the lead up to the IPO, you need to make a lot of um, disclosures, sort of, reg- you know, uh, yeah, required disclosures to the public about financial health um, and financial risk factors of the company. And that's where things uh, start to go a little off the rails where we work. Yes. How does this then backfire? What is the response from, I guess, the public and, you know, everyone at large? Yeah. So now we're in like summer 2019. Um, Basically, WeWork releases this document called the S1, which is um, also known as like the IPO prospectus, which is, um, yeah, an official document that all companies that are found to go public need to um, release. um, And it needs to be made in this specific way. And it requires, has all these required disclosures. And basically, in the S1, there's all these disclosures um, that I think um, a lot of reasonable in- investors would look at as um, conflicts of interest or um, sort of weak corporate governance. Um, you know, in the initial S1, there were some things that, um, including like um, a succession plan for Adam, in which like oh. Rebecca would be involved in picking his succession, which is like his successor, which is very um, sort of unconventional. Um, there were things having to do with um, financial transactions around the trademark for the word we. Um, there were, you know, Adam had these um, super voting shares, which are, again, not uncommon in Silicon Valley, but, you know, just something that also concentrated power um, in his hands. It, this The initial reaction to this S1 was not good. Potential investors were spooked. Um, there was like a lot of um, public discussion about this um, and it uh, generally it was just not looking great. Um, the company amended the S1 and made some changes that were um, you know, more favorable toward potential um, shareholders in the company. But I think at that point it was a little hard. It was kind of like the snowball was already rolling. So it was a little hard to slow down this um, feeling that was um, moving through kind of potential investors that this company was um, uh, overvalued, right? So at this point, the last private valuation of the company was $47 billion. And, um, you know, to kind of tell a long story short, basically the IPO um, ended up uh, getting pulled um, because there was just not enough demand to um, meet the like prices that had been expected and it, things were kind of going off the rails. And so they decided to stop the IPO. So how was Adam then ousted uh, from his position is, is now that the funds are no no longer coming in and 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 how did he end up faring compared to his employees? Yeah, so in, in September 2019, there's like a flurry of activity happening around this. There's um, you know this this potential IPO, but things are not looking good. Um, and in the midst of all this, the Wall Street Journal also published this article about mm-hmm. Adam and some of his eccentric behaviors as a CEO, um, including this anecdote in which um, Adam had um, smoked weed on a private plane that was headed to Israel and like hidden the weed in a cereal box in the plane. Anyway, it was just one of these stories of, of um, I think, um, sort of unconventional behavior from the CEO mm-hmm. that um, capped off, you know, some of these other concerns that, that were growing about um, kind of his, uh, yeah, eccentric behavior. And at that point, um, in order to try to salvage the IPO, I think there was um, a growing consensus among WeWork investors, including um, you know some of the some of his board members and, and people closest to him, 
that in order for the company to continue, it would be important for Adam to step down. So over the course of just a few days in, in September, there's this very dramatic period in which, um, yeah, there's many, many sort of backroom discussions about what can be done. Um, and, and, and the conclusion is that, yeah, Adam um, basically needs to, needs to resign. And so there's a board meeting that takes place a few days later in which um, the board votes on whether um, Adam should resign. And, you know, my understanding based on my reporting is that, yeah, he also voted himself out as well. And did he leave with uh, any kind of money or was there any, uh, uh, we, we had read that he had made millions of dollars <laughs> yeah. after so this. So the exact amount of this is quite complicated okay. because basically the initial proposed plan involved, um, you know, a combination of things like Adam was going to get paid um, a consulting fee and um, was going to have the chance to sell a bunch of WeWork stock and also maybe refinance some personal loans that he had gotten from um, banks. And, and um, you know, I think a lot of the headlines we'll read from the time were like, you know, up to $1.7 billion that he had to, you know, maybe had the chance at walking away with at the time. And of course, that was very upsetting to a lot of WeWork employees, especially because um, just a couple months later, as the company was trying to recover from all of this turmoil, um, you know, thousands of WeWork uh, employees were laid off. And this was kind of like a big um, shuttering of a bunch of, um, you know, different business arms within the company and, and this kind of thing. But then in the following months, there was a lot of legal action between um, investors and Adam and uh, the eventual final amount of money that he walked away with. Um, I don't have the exact amount, but it's definitely much less. And so it's it's one of these things where, you know, in, in the end, the... Um, the initial numbers that you might have seen in the headlines are not um, probably what he finally walked away with. That being said, I think it's fair to say that, um, you know, the amount of money that he um, left with, is, you know, it's still significant. Um, and definitely, I think for a lot of WeWork employees, it still stings because yeah. they are the ones who really, um, you know, poured their heart and energy and time into this company um, with the, um, hope that it would uh, pay off for them in the form of equity. And in many cases, it really did not because um, the value of the company has not, um, you know, basically like it has just never recovered from that period. And even after the company started, um, it finally, the company did finally go public later right. um, through a different process. Um, and it's, uh, that's a whole other thing that the share price has really not done well. Um, yeah. And so I think if you step back and look at the story of WeWork, the people who um, I feel were harmed the most were some of those most um, hardworking employees who, um, you know, there's always a risk when you join a startup. Um, you know, equity is not a guarantee by any means. But um, even then, I, I think it's it's still probably a, um, a pretty hard to swallow for them, um, the, the way that they're uh, their equity is is really not that valuable and that Adam still managed to walk away with, I think, uh, a comfortable exit. What do you think we can learn? What lessons can we draw from WeWork and its downfall? It, dep it depends on maybe who you are. If you're a venture capitalist, um, I would say maybe one of the lessons to draw from the WeWork thing is that you should invest in these companies early and then try to cash out early also in like a <laughs> secondary sale because, you know, investors who bought into WeWork later when the valuation was much higher, um, uh, that was like 
not as good a financial decision right. as those who were involved early. Um, I think if you're an employee thinking of joining a company like this, I think an important lesson to remember is like, yeah, the the hype and the flash and the fast growth um, is as exciting as it is. It's like really not a guarantee that the company is going to work out in any serious way. Um, I think, you know, stepping back maybe more broadly, like, uh, you know, a lesson to be learned is also that like money that's upstream in the sort of venture capital river, right? So it's like you start with a, a, an enormous fund like the Vision Fund and, and SoftBank, they had so much money that like it has to go somewhere, right? And so it means that the money is then getting put into companies like WeWork in a way that is maybe not the most um, level-headed um, mm. and it, it creates these downstream effects, which is like all of a sudden WeWork had so much money and they were making these like choices about growing so fast and and and, and expanding so quickly that I think, um, you know, that growth, you know, became irresponsible at some point. And then this contraction that came afterward is in my mind, you know, a result of that. Um, I think uh, those incentives of having all that money just like encouraged this growth at all costs mentality that um now i think the industry overall is trying to make sense of right they're they're mm. still trying to balance this idea of like um you know fast growth can be the path to um you know big and um, successful companies like um you know like facebook amazon google all these like big companies they they manage to make it work but i think that growth at all costs mentality also leads to a lot of um crash and burn like in the case of we work so this is this might be tied into it, but finally, we always ask our guest experts this question. At the end of the day, if you had to pick a person or thing, it could be a concept, that you think is to blame for the downfall of WeWork, who or what would that be? Mm. It's um, tough. It is tough. <laughs> it is tough because I think, um, you know, there's an interesting, there's an interesting, I think, you know, obviously like, um, it's tempting to think that like, oh, Adam is the one responsible for this stuff. And I think like, obviously he made some choices that didn't end up panning out so well, but there is an interesting take um, that I think comes from uh, Matt Levine, who's like a financial columnist at Bloomberg. Um, there's an interesting take, which is simply that um, Adam, you know, spotted an opportunity and just happened to be really good at taking advantage of it. Um, and the opportunity was this economic environment of the 2010s in which there was um, you know, we had uh, very low interest rates. And so a lot of money flowing into venture capital. Um, so there's just a ton of money. Again, like imagine this like river of money. Mm -hmm. It's like there's a lot of money at the top. It's like a huge glacier that's like all of a sudden starting to melt. And it's like um, that money needs to go somewhere. And so it like created this whole um, startup boom that I think we, you know, we've, we've seen different like manifestations of, but um uh, yeah, basically, when there's so much money coming to founders who are, you know, willing to um, kind of follow the most popular formula, which is like fast growth, like um, sort of like a mission-driven idea, um, this like sort of like strong branding, and and um, you know, like again, like the charismatic founder, like for for companies that fit that formula, they were um, for a period of time they were able to get access to like ungodly sums of money. And that led them to, you know, they were, I think, strongly incentivized um, and rewarded for making the sort of decisions that led to, um, you know, kind of this like 
over overgrown companies that were like growing too quickly and and that um you know couldn't sustain this amount of growth um so uh, maybe it's too abstract but i guess it would point to sort of like the economic environment of 2010 to yeah. 2012 yeah <laughs> like kind of a, um you know maybe that's a cop out i think there are also some people who yeah, would maybe argue that like individual players um like Lhasa or Adam had had um, more of a direct role in that, but I guess I'll I'll give that as my answer. <laughs> Great context is everything. Yeah, so yeah. <laughs> thank you so much, Ellen, for uh, shedding so much light on this um, mess. <laughs> yeah, of course. Thanks for having me. If you'd like to hear our post-interview discussion and final verdict, head over to Patreon and subscribe. Your support is greatly appreciated. Check out our show notes for a link or head over to patreon.com slash the alarmist. Hey, Alarmy, it's fact checker Chris here. Uh, if you are in or around the New York City area on Monday, November 6th, I wanted to personally invite you to my one man show. It's called Acting in a Time Such as This, and it's a comedic take on being an actor in a world where there are so many terrible things going on all the time. Ah, I wrote it. I'm in it. And I would love to see you there. We'll put a link to the information in the show bio or check out my Instagram at Chris Chris Smith Smith. Thanks. And stay tuned because next week we'll be discussing the reign of Chengis Khan. The Alarmist. Powered by ACAST. 365 day returns.